This program is presented by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Hello, I'm Sarah Gregory, and today I'm talking with Dr. Kristen Patron. She's an epidemic intelligence service officer at CDC. We'll be discussing the characteristics of hospitalized and non-hospitalized patients with COVID-19 in Atlanta. Welcome, Dr. Patron. Hi, thank you, Sarah, for having me. So COVID-19 has become, of course, instantly recognizable to everyone as the name of this pandemic. I'm not sure how many people remember what it stands for. Um, as you know, it actually means something pretty simple. Coronavirus infectious disease and the 19 refers to the year it emerged. I remember the early days when the virus didn't have a name yet. How is the name decided on? And in this case, who chose it? Was it CDC or WHO or an international committee or what? That's a good question, Sarah. Um, as you said, uh, COVID-19 is an abbreviation of the name coronavirus disease 19 for the year it was discovered, 2019. This name was actually chosen by the World Health Organization, and it was announced in February of last year. And the name has obviously been adopted all over the world, including here in the United States. So, uh, just take a quick moment to explain the difference between COVID-19 and um, SARS-2. We sometimes see SARS-2 also. So, SARS-CoV-2 is the naming of the virus that causes coronavirus disease. So, when we refer to COVID-19, we're generally referring to the disease itself, kind of like the constellation of illnesses caused by this virus, SARS-CoV-2. Okay, so your study uses data from March and April um, 2020, uh, the early days of the pandemic. Could you describe what you were doing in your role as an EIS officer at that time, and what was the mood like? So, um, when I was an epidemic intelligence service officer early in the course of the pandemic, I deployed with the epidemiology task force of the CDC COVID-19 response. As an EIS officer or epidemic intelligence service officer, we can um, deploy with multiple aspects of the response in addition to our kind of regular duties with the fellowship. So while I was deployed with the epidemiology task force, we were moving forward with this study. And so I reviewed the medical records of the non-hospitalized patients. And then I abstracted information from those medical records into a database. I was able to analyze the data from both the hospitalized and the non-hospitalized patients and then be able to put some of the findings together in this publication. I think for me, the mood was very excited. It was relatively early in my Epidemic Intelligence Service Fellowship, so I was really excited to be doing some of this work. But I think I was a little apprehensive about the trajectory of the pandemic and then what we might find with our investigation. Yeah, and what you found wasn't uh, so happy anymore, right? <laughs> right. Uh, your study w was investigated in Atlanta, Georgia, um, where the CDC is based. Um, give us a bit of background on how um, COVID-19 first emerged in the city and how it's played out since then. Well, like 
I think the COVID pandemic emerged and, and has kind of played out in Atlanta very similar to how it has um, throughout the rest of the country. Like many states, the COVID pandemic emerged in Georgia in March of last year. Um, Georgia experienced peaks in the summer of 2020 and then again in the winter of 2020 and 2021. Georgia did declare a public health emergency in mid-March and implemented measures to try and limit the spread of the virus, like wearing masks, limiting the number of people at social gatherings, and issuing stay-at-home orders. And then Georgia began vaccinating for COVID in December of last year. And recently, vaccination has actually been opened up for everybody over the age of 16 in the state. Uh, Since your study is based on information from a year ago, or approximately a year ago, how is that useful now? Yeah, that's a good question, Sarah. I think many of the characteristics of COVID that we evaluate in our study, um, such as how long the symptoms last, uh, risk factors that might put an individual at risk for more severe disease, um, medical conditions that also might put them at higher risk for developing severe disease from COVID, are not likely to change. Also, similarly, you know, how well these conditions are controlled in individuals are not going to likely to change significantly. So these findings will still be useful, I think, and applicable even now. The findings from the study can also be used to generate new hypotheses for future studies or um, to prompt similar studies involving multiple sites because, as you know, our site, our investigation took place in Atlanta. So I think a lot of the things that we looked at and a lot of the issues and risk factors that we tried to identify are things that are going to be consistent and still stay prevalent uh, during the pandemic, even with the emergence of variants that we're seeing now. Why are patients with um, conditions like diabetes, hypertension, or particularly obesity more likely to have severe COVID-19? They're not like asthma, which clearly affects the lungs. Right. I know everybody has heard how um, significant and devastating COVID can be, um, causing people to have difficulty breathing, and it does affect the lungs. But we are seeing people um, who have conditions like hypertension, diabetes, and obesity more likely to develop severe COVID disease. Um, And the exact mechanism that causes this higher risk is not um, really known. It is thought that an impaired or weakened immune system um, due to these conditions or the inflammation in the body that occurs as a result of hypertension, diabetes, and obesity is what really contributes to this increased risk of severe outcomes from outcomes from COVID, um, hospitalization, need for ICU admission, and even death. Uh, So why is asthma not considered a risk factor? I have asthma, so I was astounded um, when it wasn't on the list. Other studies have definitely identified asthma um, as a risk factor for severe COVID infection. Unfortunately, in our study, we really did not have enough patients that had asthma to be able to evaluate this condition as a risk factor. So even though we didn't list it as a risk factor, there are definitely other studies that have identified asthma as a risk factor for severe COVID infection. 
Okay, well, that makes more sense to me. It doesn't make me feel better, but it makes more sense. Um, uh, you analyzed whether patients with controlled hypertension were less likely to be hospitalized than patients with uncontrolled hypertension. How did you define control and what did you find? Well, we tried to use, that's a good question, sir. We tried to use the information that was available from the medical chart. So we were able to identify the number of medications a person with hypertension or a person who was identified as having high blood pressure, um, how many medications for high blood pressure they were taking. And we decided to use this as a marker for how severe their high blood pressure was or how well their hypertension or high blood pressure was controlled. We found that patients who were taking three medications for high blood pressure, three or more medications for high blood pressure, were at higher risk for hospitalization um, with COVID infection compared to those patients who had hypertension who were only taking one medication or even um, no medications. So hypertension often goes along with obesity. Um, how were you able to separate that out? It was difficult. We were able to control, and um, when we did our analysis, we were able to do what was called control for other risk factors, because you're right, it's very frequently patients who have high blood pressure often have other conditions like diabetes and obesity, and we were able to control for these other things, the diabetes and obesity, when we were looking specifically at those who had high blood pressure and the number of medications that we we're taking, almost in essence, kind of taking that out of the analysis and balancing it between both groups so we could really focus on how much of a risk there was in those patients with high blood pressure to be able to look at the number of medications they were taking and whether that affected their risk of hospitalization. You carried out a similar analysis for patients with diabetes, but you looked at a molecule called hemoglobin A1C. What is that? And did it end up having any relationship with whether a diabetic person would be hospitalized? Right. So hemoglobin A1C is a measure of how much glucose or sugar is attached to our red blood cells. It's a very useful test for patients with diabetes or for diagnosing diabetes because it measures an average of the amount of glucose or sugar on red blood cells over the last three months. So it is commonly used by doctors and healthcare providers to estimate how well the diabetes is controlled in a patient and whether or not the patient has diabetes. So in our study, we found that patients who had diabetes, who had a hemoglobin A1C greater than 7, and we, we chose this level because it is a common cutoff. It's, it's listed on the CDC website, the American Diabetes Association. It's a common value for estimating um, adequate versus poor control of diabetes. And we found that patients with diabetes who had a hemoglobin A1C, a higher hemoglobin A1C, greater than 7% were approximately four times more likely to require hospitalization with COVID infection compared to those patients who had diabetes and a hemoglobin A1C less than 7%. Uh, we sort of touched on this already, but how does having more than one underlying condition affect your risk for COVID? Right. We, we found that there was a direct relationship between the number of underlying medical conditions, also known as comorbidities, and the risk of hospitalization. So patients with 
two underlying medical conditions were approximately two times more likely to require hospitalization than those patients with no underlying medical conditions. And then those patients with three or more underlying medical conditions, or also known as comorbidities, were four times more likely to be hospitalized. So we did find this direct kind of stepwise increase with the risk of needing hospitalization from COVID infection and the number of conditions or medical conditions that a patient has. What were the most common symptoms among hospitalized um, versus non-hospitalized patients? Like many studies have reported, and I think most people are familiar with, we did find that cough and fever and muscle aches and fatigue were the most common symptoms in the non-hospitalized patients. We found that upper respiratory symptoms like nasal congestion or runny nose and sore throat were more common in the non-hospitalized patients, um, whereas shortness of breath was actually more common in the hospitalized group. You also looked at whether a patient's symptoms lasted more than 21 days. Would those patients be considered what we call long haulers now? Yeah, so that's tough to say. Um, the definition of the long hauler um, is definitely evolving. I think in general and right now, it refers to patients who have recovered from their acute COVID infection and are still experiencing symptoms weeks to even months after testing positive for the disease. Even though we found that almost 50% of the non-hospitalized patients in our study had symptoms that lasted longer than three weeks, it's really difficult to say if these were actually long haulers. We didn't look beyond the 21 days, and we really didn't design the study to look for long-haul syndrome or long haulers. So it's tough to say if those patients who had symptoms longer than 21 days in our study actually ended up or turned out to be long haulers. I see. Okay. So did symptom length have any effect on the outcomes you studied? We, we tried to look at that, but we really were not able to, to look at the differences in symptom length between hospitalized and non-hospitalized patients. You know, patients who were admitted to the hospital um, may have had symptoms, obviously, before going into the hospital, but once they are admitted to the hospital, are likely going to be receiving, you know, therapies and medications to alleviate their symptoms. So it is difficult to do a direct comparison between duration of symptoms between hospitalized and non-hospitalized patients just because the therapies that they're receiving are, are very different and, and some modalities that might be given in the hospital might blunt the symptoms and make it difficult to really do that direct comparison about how long they last between those that have more severe disease and those that do not. Uh, you also studied the different types of treatment people initially sought. Um, what were the different types and what did you find and when did people seek them out? We really looked at care-seeking behavior in the non-hospitalized patients. We were very interested to see, you know, how they entered the healthcare system, how many interactions they had with the healthcare system. Interestingly, we found that 85% of our non-hospitalized patients sought in-person care, meaning you went to a provider, um, physically went to a provider. So that would be a visit to the doctor's office or a visit to the emergency department or urgent care clinic. 85% of our non-hospitalized patients were seen in person a single time for their COVID illness. 
we looked at all the healthcare visits among the non-hospitalized patients and found um, that the second most common type of healthcare visit for their COVID illness was actually a telehealth visit. And that among those patients who had symptoms um, lasting longer than three weeks, those ones with longer symptom durations, telehealth was the most common type of visit that these individuals um, participated in for their care for COVID. We, we do have to acknowledge, though, that this um, information was um, – that we use this information um, – we only use the information that was available at the time we abstracted the medical records. So it is possible that patients may have had other additional visits beyond the investigation period, but we did think it was very interesting to note that a large percentage of our non-hospitalized patients – we're seeing a single time for their COVID illness, and that telehealth really played a very key role in the care of all the non-hospitalized patients, but also in particularly those who had symptoms that lasted um, greater than 21 days. Why don't you give us the highlights of your study now uh, and tell us what the goal was? The goals of our study were really twofold. First, we wanted to describe some of the key characteristics in the non-hospitalized patients. Up until that point, there had really been a lot of focus on, you know, what what drives people to or what um, causes people to need to be admitted to the hospital or what may be causing and playing into more severe disease for COVID. So we really wanted to take a little bit of a deeper dive into the non-hospitalized patients. We wanted to um, as I said before, look at some of the care-seeking behavior, you know, how often and where these patients were getting their care, how long they were having symptoms, and what kind of symptoms these non-hospitalized patients were having. And as we talked about earlier, you know, we found that most patients that did not require hospitalization were seen a single time either in person by a primary care provider or via a telehealth visit for their COVID illness. And that um, that symptoms lasting longer than three weeks are actually quite common in the non-hospitalized group. The other goal of our study was we wanted to explore in more detail some of the known risk factors for COVID. Again, um, a lot of interest had focused on what were the risk factors, but we wanted to look at things um, in a little bit more detail, like breaking down age into some kind of smaller age categories and looking at combinations of underlying medical conditions. And um, again, the question of how well these conditions were controlled in patients, whether that contributed to their risk of hospitalization. And um, also, again, we, we looked at how having multiple underlying medical conditions or comorbidities um, played into the patient's risk of needing hospitalization. And we found, again, that increasing age, and as we talked about earlier, increasing number of underlying medical conditions or comorbidities resulted in this stepwise increase in the likelihood of being hospitalized for COVID. And then we also found this correlation between degree of control of high blood pressure and diabetes and the increased risk of hospitalization. We touched on this before, but um, elaborate, if you can, a little bit on uh, how your Atlanta findings are generalizable to the rest of the country and the world. That's a good question. Um, you know, it's difficult to generalize our findings to the rest of the country or to the world. As I said, I think risk factors are something that are going to be present everywhere. 
But it's important to keep in mind that we studied a group of patients from a very set time period, March and April of last year, presenting to a single hospital system in one city in the United States. And this population may not mirror and it may not be identical to populations in other areas of the country and and in the world. Um, There are definitely important other factors to consider when we talk about risk of hospitalization or risk factors or risk of severe disease from COVID that may be different from our population and other populations. You know, things like access to medical care or cultural differences or differences in socioeconomic status really can play into um, the severity of disease or the ability to get care for COVID that um, may not be generalizable from the Atlanta area to other areas of the country or even to the world. Uh, You mentioned telemedicine and how um, people generally in the 21 days, um, if they had COVID, um, uh, just had one visit. Um, uh, But tell us more about Uh, how telemedicine has risen in popularity during the pandemic and what in the broad scheme of things has its role been in treating patients with COVID-19? I think telemedicine, as I said, has played a key role in healthcare delivery during the pandemic and some of it has been driven by necessity. Um, It has provided access to healthcare providers for patients um, at the same time protecting both the patient and the healthcare provider. And I think telemedicine has um, been useful for treating patients with COVID, but also equally importantly, um, has been useful in patients to treat um, other conditions or allowing patients to continue their routine primary care. And as we suggested in the study, maintaining good control of underlying medical conditions can lower could, could possibly lower your risk of hospitalization with COVID-19. And so telemedicine, I think, has played an important role in accomplishing this and continuing to um, facilitate the healthcare provider and patient interaction um, while at the same time maintaining safety of both the patient and the provider. Um, I keep going back to this, but in general, if you think you might have COVID, when should you go to the ER versus an outpatient or telemedicine appointment? So the CDC actually has a lot of useful information on their website for people to help decide if they have symptoms and where they might need to go get care or get testing. In general, if you have a healthy immune system and are experiencing mild symptoms like cough or loss of taste and smell or runny nose, then it is appropriate to contact your primary care provider for a visit or a telemedicine visit. On the other hand, if you are experiencing any life-threatening symptoms such as difficulty breathing or chest pain or you're witnessing somebody who has is having a decreased level of consciousness, then it's important to go to the emergency room. Were there any findings that actually surprised you? One of the more interesting findings from our study was the percentage of non-hospitalized patients that had symptoms lasting longer than three weeks. And also, interestingly, that the majority of these patients were managed or sought care a single time for a healthcare provider. This does suggest that a lot of non-hospitalized patients are able to manage their symptoms on their own, um, again, only with a single interaction with a healthcare provider, even though they might be experiencing symptoms for longer than several weeks. 
Were there any um, particular challenges uh, in doing this study? I think one of the biggest challenges was setting up the study. We really would not have been able to perform the analysis and present these findings if we didn't have the support and the cooperation from the healthcare system um, who provided access to the medical records and testing information, um, as well as uh, the cooperation from the state and local health departments. This cooperation between CDC and local jurisdictions is something that has occurred repeatedly during this pandemic, and I really think has provided some key information um, that has informed much of our public health responses to COVID and to the pandemic in general. So it really has been um great to see this cooperation between multiple different organizations working together towards a common goal. And, and that is one of the things that happened when we set up our study and, and really could not have, the study could not have taken place if we didn't have that cooperative effort. Uh, so speaking of studies, are there any other uh, CDC COVID studies planned that you want to mention or that you're part of? And uh, there's so, still so much we don't know. Yes, there, there still is a lot we don't know. And with the evolving pandemic and um, as more and more information becomes available, more and more questions get asked. Um, so there are lots of, there are many, many studies planned and, and ongoing with CDC, um, particularly looking at these variants of interest and transmission. Um, and it really, it, with the goal uh, to helping us better understand um, this disease and, and how to combat it. So, yes, there are multiple studies ongoing, both looking at some of these risk factors and care-seeking, as well as, um, you know, mitigation measures to try and curb the spread. And you mentioned variants, studying how the variants um, uh, are affected by the vaccine. No? Yes, absolutely. Okay. As we know all too well, COVID is still killing lots of people and certainly making lots of people very sick. But more and more people are starting to ignore it. Um, what are your thoughts on this? I think... COVID fatigue and um, lockdown fatigue is something that's real. I think it's easy to become more casual in our adherence to um, mitigation measures like social distancing and mask wearing and hand washing. Um, I think it's particularly hard as the weather gets warmer and also we hear about more people getting vaccinated. But it is important to remember that, that COVID is still out there and it is killing people and that simple measures like mask wearing and hand washing and social distancing and getting vaccinated can save not only your life, but the lives of others as well. What is something you think every person should know about COVID? I think asymptomatic spread is the one thing everyone should know and, and probably has heard about, but it's always good to remind um, people um, about COVID. So even though you may not have any symptoms or even be aware that you're infected with COVID, you can still spread the virus. Um, and the next person who gets the infection from you may not have the same mild symptoms. Um, they could end up in the hospital, they could end up on a ventilator, or even worse. Um, and this is why I think it's so important not to become lax in our efforts to spread the virus. 
Um, and be constantly aware and reminded that asymptomatic spread is something that is still happening during this pandemic. And again, even though you may not have symptoms, you can spread the virus to somebody else who could really be um, significantly affected by COVID infection. Uh, tell us about your job at CDC, uh, what you like most about it, what you do, what your background is. Um, so I am a second-year epidemic intelligence service officer. My background is I'm an emergency physician. I practiced for a number of years before joining the epidemic intelligence service. Um, EIS, or the Epidemic Intelligence Service, it's a two-year applied epidemiology fellowship or, or training program with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Um, we like that we've been called disease detectives. Um, what I like most about EIS uh, is the opportunity to get involved in so many different aspects of CDC. Um, obviously, most of my training has been with COVID, but before the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic, I was involved in the Ebola and polio responses. I've been able to travel to other states. I've been able to travel to other countries to support these efforts. Um, I have learned new skills in each of these deployments. I've been able to work um, alongside some really incredible and dedicated people who have been mentors and taught me an unbelievable amount of, of information. And I like knowing that I have contributed even a small part to this massive global effort to combat these diseases so that's really what has been my favorite part of EIS so far. I think um, EIS officers are what everybody think of as CDC. That's what everybody does at CDC. It's it's like the dream job and and the movies and everything. I, I I like it, and I think I think EIS is well known among CDC. So you know, CDC staffers will really look out for us and and pull, put opportunities sort of in front of us that we re we can really seize on. I think it's it's almost the best of the best. You get to have your cake and eat it too. You get to pick all of the things that you would be interested in. You get to work hard. You get to learn uh, learn whole new aspects of a public health response and um, new skills in each step and each deployment and each activity you get involved in. Uh, CDC has a lot of... Um, uh, high-profile, important scientists that started out as EIS officers. Um, do you hope to stay here, or are you going to take this knowledge and try something new after your program's over? I'm still trying to find that out right now, Sarah, but I really would hope to stay with CDC. I think it's a great place to work. I think the work is just so important, and I love to be involved in it. So it, it really is my hope to stay with CDC, um, and I, you know, I hope to take some of the skills that I've learned with EIS and then some of my clinical skills that I have from you know, working as an emergency physician and, and combine those two in my continued work with the CDC. If you have any free time, um, how have you been spending it this this last year? Most people at CDC, unless deployed um, to COVID or another outbreak, are still working from home. Um, how has that worked for you, and what are you doing? I've been able, well, thankfully, I've been able to do a combination of field deployments and telework during the COVID pandemic. So, 
taking field deployments. Again, I've traveled all over the country to help state and local um, jurisdictions with their COVID response. Um, I'm currently working with a vaccine safety team. So um, between deploying to the field and then doing telework from home, um, it's, it's been pretty busy. <laughs> it is nice to be home when I'm teleworking with my children during the pandemic. Um, it has been challenging to try and meet their needs, particularly with remote learning and on top of working in kind of the fast pace of the COVID response. But I think like everybody else, we've we've made it work. Everybody's pitching in, everybody's helping out, and everybody's making adjustments. Um, when I do have some free time, I like to bike. I like to play my cello, although my family says I sound terrible when I do it. But um, those are things I like to do in some of my free time. It really has been a, an interesting and challenging year Um but as I said, I, I've had some amazing opportunities, and I have really learned an incredible amount with my time at EIS and with CDC. Well, thank you for taking the time to talk with me today in your very busy life, Dr. Patron. Great. Thank, thank you, Sarah. Thanks for, for having me. And thanks for joining me out there. You can read the April 2021 article, Characteristics and Risk Factors of Hospitalized and Non-Hospitalized COVID-19 Patients, Atlanta, Georgia, USA, March through April 2020, online at cdc.gov slash EID. I'm Sarah Gregory for Emerging Infectious Diseases. For the most accurate health information, visit cdc.gov or call 1-800-CDC-INFO.